The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Oh, I have known that quote. I have heard that quote for so long, but I went ahead and looked it up because that is the context of the great commandment. The enemy of my enemy is my friend is Indian. It's written originally in Sanskrit 400 years BC. And that's the context for the greatest commandment when they ask that question. Welcome to the Find Your Tove podcast. I am Dr. Henry Graff. This is episode 31. I'm calling it Mind. And we're landing this ship where we spent this year so far, the beginning of 2023, looking at the four looks. We'll finish that up next week and incorporating them with the Shema and the greatest commandment. So here's the deal. The greatest commandment starts off with this. In Matthew 22, it says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. The Sadducees are one of the power-playing groups in Israel at that time. Sadducees starts with S, and they were in charge of the sacrifices. They were in charge of the temple. They were the priests. That's where they got their power. So hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Pharisees, they were the ones that decided what was fair. They decided the law. They were the teachers, the lawyers, the rabbis. They did not get along with the Sadducees, and the Sadducees did not get along with the Pharisees. I'm stating that wrong. They got along because they had to get along. They got along the same way the Democrats and the Republicans in Senate and in Congress get along. They have to get along to keep the machine running, but they also really don't like each other and they're at each other's throats. The context of them asking Jesus what is the greatest commandment is the Pharisees heard Jesus had silenced the Sadducees and so they decided to engage with him. The enemy of my enemy is my friend and they were checking out whose side Jesus is on. The Sadducees were a group of Levites. You had to be a certain bloodline to be a Sadducee. This goes all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 sons of Israel, 2,000 years before this question was asked. But if you were going to be a Sadducee, if you were going to be a priest, you had to be of that bloodline. The Pharisees, on the other hand, the teachers of the law, they didn't have to be a certain bloodline. They had to be of a certain academic purity. Here's what would happen. Every little boy wanted to be a rabbi. That would be like going to a basketball court and wondering if the kids playing wanted to be in the NBA. Of course they did. They faked it. They pretend to be their favorite basketball player. They, they say, no, nah, I'm Michael Jordan. You're LeBron James. They play those games. It was no different back then. The little boys wanted to grow up to be rabbis. 
And so when they were six years old, they'd go into the first round of school. It happened from the time they were six to ten. It was called Betsefar, which means House of the Book. And they would memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would memorize it cold. If they were the best of the best, they would go on to a second round of school, Bet Talmud, where they would learn this art of questions and answers. The way this was done was they would quote one portion of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The really smart ones would quote from the prophets all the way through the Italian prophet Melanchi. That's a joke, a really bad joke. It's Malachi, but it's spelled Melanchi, and so I always say it that way, and it makes me laugh. The point is, during this second round of schooling, they would quote a portion of scripture, and the way they do it, it was called a remez. They would either be referring to the line before it or the line after it. Have you ever been to a concert and the singer holds the mic out to the audience and doesn't say a line of the song and the entire audience yells that line of the song because everybody knows it. That's a remez. That's going everybody memorized the same song. That's what the Pharisees did. So the most important lines of the song aren't said because everybody knows it. When the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those that had mastered Bet Sephar, Bet Talmud, they had actually went on and did Bet Midrash, where you study under a rabbi to become a rabbi, and you do that from like age 14 to age 30. I should do a whole episode just on this schooling system because it's, man, it's so fascinating. But they wanted to know what the rabbi knew and do what the rabbi did and think how the rabbi thought. Pharisees knew this and they knew that Jesus was a rabbi, but they didn't know if he aligned with the Sadducees. And so the enemy of the enemy is my friend. And they remezzed his answer. They asked Jesus the common question that you would ask anybody who might be a rabbi. Here's the question. What is the greatest of all the commands? Don't miss this. Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. And that's the way they'd all answer. What's the greatest commandment? They'd say the Shema. But notice the part that Jesus left out. This is a huge remez. The Shema starts with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The basis of the Shema is unity. I hope you're not missing this. The context of the question is division. Pharisees trying to find out whose team Jesus was on. He was against the Sadducees, and they wanted to know, are you aligned with us? And so he does this ninja move where he starts in the middle of the Shema rather than at the beginning, 
to highlight unity, a thing that Jesus wants the people to know about the greatest commandment is that it starts with unity. You'd quote a command, you'd quote a law, and then you'd give an interpretation. If you're a Bible person, the form of that that they would do, and you see Jesus doing this when he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, you say, you have heard it said, and then you quote the commandment. Then you give an application. If it's a new application, you'd say, but I say, and you'd give that new application. So Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. That's the command. Then he says the interpretation. And the way you do this is by loving your neighbor as yourself. But Jesus pulls this ninja move. He slides mind in there. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew law, in what they learned in Bet Sephar, the law is love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. It's easy to try to get nitpicky, to try to check boxes, to go, okay, I loved God with my will, check. I loved God with my soul, check. I loved God with my strength, check. But Jesus slides mind in because the point of the Shema is unity. The point of the Shema is loving with all you've got going in a hundred percent. Yeah, his application, the way that you live this out, they were ready for a new twist or turn of the way you live that out. Some of the people would say, how do you do that? How do you love God with all your heart, soul, and strength? The Pharisees would say, by keeping the commandments. The Sadducees would say, by offering the sacrifices. But Jesus said, the way you keep that commandment, the way you know you're loving God, is by loving your neighbor as yourself. And maybe that too is another, another podcast, a whole other series. Today, I want to focus in on the addition of mind. Once again, this isn't to get nitpicky. This isn't to check boxes. This is to say, how do you go all in? How do you align? How do you have unity? When the Shema was first written, they weren't ignoring the mind. They just didn't think about the mind the same way 2,000 years before Jesus as they did at Jesus' time. We started thinking differently about the mind when the Greeks entered the scene, when philosophy entered the scene, when rhetoric entered the scene. In ancient times, 2,000 years before Jesus, wisdom was still there. You can read this in the Proverbs Wisdom was viewed as something external to the person. And I'm talking in generalities here. I haven't done a deep dive into this. You see this even when we talked about the capitals last week. Wisdom is viewed as something external. The Greeks took thoughts and what we think about and they made it internal. They placed it in the mind. And that's what we're going to dive into today. How do you align your mind? Let me phrase that a different way. There's an author named Austin Kleon. He's got an amazing blog. He's got an amazing newsletter. He wrote the book. I'm looking at my bookshelf right now when I'm telling you this. He wrote the book Steal Like an Artist, which is incredible. He wrote Keep Going. 
he wrote another book that I must have lent to somebody because it's not on my shelf. I know he's got three, and they're a different size than regular books. They're a little bit shorter. They almost look like an overgrown CD case. He has a blog. He keeps a website going. And he tweeted one day. He put out on his blog. It went out on his Instagram. A quote from a mentor of his. Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Isn't that amazing? Pay attention to what you pay attention to. Think about what you're thinking about. There's one way to do that where you think about what you're thinking about, and they call that, academics call that metacognition. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm not saying you deeply analyze your thinking patterns. What are you thinking about? What's getting your attention? What's getting your focus? There's another book, actually, it's just to the right on my bookshelf when I was looking at Austin Kleon's book called The Power of Bad. It goes into how easy it is to focus on the negative, on the bad. And I'm going from memory here, and I've read different articles on this, but one negative needs five, six, even seven positives to balance it out. Let me give you an example on that. If you lose $20, you have to gain $100 to feel like it's balanced. If you got out to your car today and underneath your windshield wiper, there was a ticket for parking and it was a $20 ticket, you would be super frustrated. You would be bummed out. Regardless of where you fall financially, it's just one of those things that, man, that's a hit. If that same day you got home and there was an unexpected, just as equally unexpected as the parking ticket, check in the mail, a rebate check. You had paid a bill and you overpaid and they gave you $100 back and you didn't know it was coming. That's what it would have to be. You'd have to gain 100 if you lost 20 to make it feel even. Our bodies resonate with bad that much. What our minds can do is engage and we can think different. We can choose to think differently about it. If that scenario had happened and you lost $20 but you gained $100, our brains can comprehend that you're actually up 80 bucks. You are in a more positive situation, not a negative one. But we have to engage our brains to get there, and it's so rare that we do it. Now, why is it? There's all kinds of theories on it. I think it's really summarized in what Jesus says in John 10.10. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy. That there are actually forces in our world that are trying to kill us, to steal from us, to destroy us. There's these negative forces in the spiritual realm that are actively working against us. The Power of Bad is not a religious book. It doesn't buy into an evil supernatural force. But it proves scientifically that the neurology of our brain tends to go that direction. In 2 Corinthians, there's this guy named Paul, and he writes a letter to the church in Corinth. And this is what he says. If you are a Bible person, you can look this up in 
2 Corinthians 10, 4-5. If you're not, you can literally Google it and it'll show up. But Paul writes this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. I would say, even if you're not a religious person, can you suspend your disbelief enough to go, hold on, there are strongholds of negativity that I really wish were demolished. I think we can all agree on that one that the negativity in our world today isn't doing anybody any good. The focus on all the hate, on all the pain, on all the suffering, tends to perpetuate it. It tends to make it worse. I focus on the hate and I become hateful. But verse 5 says this, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. When we interact with Christ, Jesus brought what's called fruits of the Spirit. Love and joy, peace and patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I don't know about you, but I can guess that you want more of that. I want more of that. I would rather live in a world with more love, more joy, more peace, more patience, more goodness, more kindness, more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. How do we get there? Those are the gifts of the Spirit, but what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians is, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What does it look like to take your thoughts and make them obedient to Christ? What's it look like to take your thoughts and make them obedient to those fruits of Christ's spirit? To go, hold on, right now we live in a world where it's filled with hate and my natural response, somebody hates me, my body goes into fight or flight mode. That's my natural reaction. To be completely honest with you, my body, it secretes adrenaline and I go into fight mode. If I'm hurt, I naturally want to hurt you more than you hurt me. Oh, what's it look like to engage my mind to take that thought captive and instead of going, oh, you hurt me so I want to hurt you back worse, I take that thought captive and I go, yes, that hurt, that's real. Right now, that caused me emotional pain. And instead of going, I'm going to perpetuate the hurt, I take that thought captive. And I go, man, that person that hurt me, they're probably hurting. They're already hurt. They're already in pain. How can I, in this moment, show love rather than perpetuating this vicious cycle? Oh, I don't know any of us that are really, really good at it. And that's why I return to the Jesus story over and over and over, because I need an example. I don't need more information, more checkboxes, more things that I've got to do. I need that paradigm of checkboxes shattered. And instead, I need an example. That's where I see that example in Jesus, that he took all the pain, he took all the suffering, and he fully entered into it on the cross. 
He took my pain, my suffering, my hatred, and went to the cross with it. And somehow in the mystery of the cross, all of that was crucified, all of that died, and instead Jesus brought love. If I try to muscle up and just do it myself, I can't. It all starts with capturing my thoughts, reminding myself, I have already been loved. When I wasn't worthy of love, when I had messed up, when I was hateful, God, God's self, loved me. That's, in my opinion, what it looks like to take those thoughts captive. But let's get really practical. How do we do it? I think one way, we have another letter from Paul. This time he's writing to a church in Philippi. And there was a guy named Eugene Peterson who translated the Bible in this really beautiful way. And he closes Philippians with this. Summing it all up, friends, I'd say you'll do best by filling your minds and meditating on things that are true, things that are noble, reputable, authentic, complete, gracious. The best and not the worst, the beautiful and not the ugly, things to praise, not things to curse. What does it look like to end your day when you go home tonight to sit down I find journaling really, really helpful. I find writing down my thoughts helps a ton. And maybe you do it before you go to bed. Maybe you do it the first thing when you wake up in the morning and you reflect on your day before. But to make notes on that, to fill your mind, to capture your thoughts, and to ask, hey, what happened today that was true? What's the truth? What happened today that was noble? What happened today that was reputable? And I'm putting big pauses in here because I'm hoping whether you're jogging or driving or listening, you can stop right now and just answer that question in the pause. What happened today that was authentic? That smile from the child. The bird building its nest. What happened today that was compelling? What happened today that was gracious? Every episode I end with that. It is so easy to look at all of those things in the world and to get filled with all kinds of icky negative stuff. But what's it look like to focus on the grace when we're talking about a line, remember, this is the law, this is the commandment. We'll come up short time and time again. What's it look like to attempt to align your mind with your will? To think about the things that you want to think about. To align your soul and your strength with your mind and will and to let those become fuel. When we do that, even for a moment, we actually get somewhere. We make forward motion. We go in a positive direction. We see an increased quality of life. And sometimes, often, we fail to live up to even what we're striving for. When we do, we refocus on grace. When you fail, grace 
Know that because of Christ, you are forgiven. Know that because of Jesus, you are set free, forgiven, and peace. God's not mad at you. God loves you. And it's because of that love that we overflow and align to loving God back and to loving our neighbor as yourself as you do that a little bit more today than you did yesterday, as you receive that grace a little bit more than you did yesterday, may you have peace.